Hi, listeners. As we near the end of our third season, I just wanted to thank all of you for making ed infinitum a part of your routine. Whether you're a teacher, a student, a parent, or just someone interested in school, you've been the reason I keep sinking so many hours into researching and making these episodes. And you'll be the reason it continues into a fourth season, if it does. Yes, I'm coming hat in hand, just like at a school fundraiser, to ask you to please, if you value the show and what it offers, make a donation to help sustain this podcast. You can go to our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and give what you feel is reasonable. In return, you'll get that warm, fuzzy feeling from knowing your gift is keeping something good afloat, and of course, if enough people do what you're doing, you'll get a fourth season. Here's your chance to be an education hero. Seize it! Okay, and now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 3, Episode 14, Blowout, our season finale. At this point, we've now had almost 50 episodes in this podcast, so it's high time to address a glaring gap in our coverage. We've looked at education through the eyes of teachers, families, political leaders, and historians from all different walks of life, but we've yet to have a single episode that focuses on the point of view of the largest and most important group of people involved in American public education, the students. So to wrap up season three of this pandemic year of extraordinary political, racial, and technological upheaval, we're going to look at an extraordinary group of students whose experience encapsulates all of those upheavals in one. The students of seven East Los Angeles high schools whose fight against injustice in 1968 led to the largest and most coordinated act of student educational activism until the 2018 March for Our Lives. And honestly, what these kids in East LA did, I would argue, was far bolder and was undertaken in the face of far more resistance. Interested yet? Well, let's begin. The year 1968 holds a pretty iconic place in American history for so many reasons. The assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Senator Bobby Kennedy, the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, the massive demonstrations of the 1968 Democratic National Convention, the Apollo 8 mission, the election of President Richard Nixon. Yet in all of the iconic student protests of that year, one of the largest, yet least taught about, was the East LA high school blowouts. Throughout the 1960s, millions of Latinos were following the example of African-American civil rights leaders. Although Cesar Chavez's successful activism on behalf of California farm workers is probably the most well-known of these efforts, other efforts centered around improving education for Latinx students, and the largest concentration of them, over 130,000, was in Los Angeles County schools. East LA school students in particular were about 75% Chicano, or Mexican-American, some of whom could claim ancestry all the way back to when California had been a part of Mexico before the U.S. conquered it in the Mexican-American War. Even as African Americans had been struggling with the separate but unequal educational opportunities presented to them by American public schools, states like California, whose history of segregation laws applied officially to Asian Americans and Native Americans as well as African Americans, but not officially to Latinos, nevertheless practiced school segregation. Businesses and schools alike boldly posted signs banning Mexican-American patronage and attendance all across Southern California, and those policies were upheld. Chicano families in Lemon Grove organized a school boycott and eventually successfully sued in San Diego County Court to allow their children to attend the district's white schools in 1930 in what I believe was the first successful legal challenge to school segregation in the United States. 
24 years before the Brown versus Board of Education decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1944, Gonzalo and Felicitas Mendes sued after their children had been turned away from the largely white Westminster Town schools in the L.A. suburbs, even though other, whiter-passing members of their family had been able to attend. Mendes joined with four other plaintiffs, William Guzman, Frank Palomino, Tomas Estrada, and Lorenzo Ramirez, from nearby Santa Ana County School Districts and filed a lawsuit in federal district court known as Mendes v. Westminster. After two years, federal district judge Paul McCormick ruled in the case that the segregation of Mexican-Americans was not only unenforceable under California law, but in fact violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution's 14th Amendment. Yet court decisions only had so much effect. Witness how school segregation today is more or less equal to that of the 1960s, despite being over half a century after the Brown decision. See Season 2, Episode 7 of this podcast for more information about that. So it may come as no surprise that even by 1968, the kind of education Chicano students were receiving in East L.A. schools was pretty dismal. Graduation rates were among the lowest in the country. The dropout rate at Lincoln High School was 39%, at Roosevelt High School, 45%, and at Garfield High School, a staggering 57.5%. For those students who made it to college, the graduation rate was even worse. Fewer than 0.1% of Chicano students completed a college degree. There was little mystery about why. Average class sizes in East LA schools were 40 students to a classroom, and the ratio of school counselors to students was 1 to 4,000. Chicano schools had outdated and insufficient materials, and conditions for the students were often psychologically and even physically abusive. Students were, for example, penalized for speaking their native Spanish in class, with punishments that ranged from wearing dunce caps, yes, that was a real thing, to actually being physically beaten with paddles. Student and family protest generally fell upon deaf ears, which may have had something to do with the fact that there were no Mexican-Americans on LA City Council or the Board of Supervisors, and only one, Julian Nava, served on the school board in 1968. If you want one particularly repulsive example of the power structure's response, witness a letter written by Lincoln High School teacher Richard Davis, who responded to student concerns by writing, and I quote, Most of the Chicanos have never had it so good. Before the Spanish came, he was an Indian grubbing in the soil, and after the Spaniards came, he was a slave. It seems to me that America must be a very desirable place. Witness the number of wetbacks and migrants, both legal and illegal, from Mexico. Unquote. In one way or another, that was the message. Shut up, be grateful, and by the way, if you speak Spanish in class, your teacher will hit you. But in the years leading up to 1968, some Chicano students had had enough and were undertaking more extensive efforts to organize for change. Starting in 1963, Camp Hess Kramer, a Jewish summer camp in Malibu, had been hosting motivational programs for outstanding East LA Chicano students, which provided a forum for those students to air their grievances and network with peers and start to formulate plans of action. Activists opened the La Parana Coffee Shop in 1967 at the corner of Olympic and Goodrich Boulevards as headquarters for their organization, Chicano Youths for Community Action, led by Chicano college students David Sanchez and Victoria Castro, who were also founding members of Las Buenas Cafés, or the Brown Berets. The Brown Berets were inspired by the Black Panther Party to be a parallel movement for Latino youth, focused mainly on education reform, anti-war activism, and police brutality. Despite their characteristic paramilitary attire, which included the eponymous Brown Berets, the Brown Berets used almost exclusively nonviolent tactics. 
although that didn't stop the FBI and police forces from routinely surveilling and infiltrating their movement. The students also had allies among some teachers, most famously Salvador Sal Castro, no relation to Victoria, a Chicano teacher whose father had been forcibly deported and repatriated during the Great Depression. Sal, who had been born in the U.S., returned as a young child and experienced discrimination all throughout his school-age years. After serving in the Korean War, he returned to teach social studies in Los Angeles schools, where he managed to include Chicano history and pride into his curriculum, as well as coach Chicano students in activism. He was eventually dismissed from his job teaching at Belmont High School, after encouraging student government candidates to deliver their campaign speeches in Spanish, which was against the school rules, but got another job at Lincoln High School, where he helped connect his students with the Chicano Youth Leadership Conferences I've been mentioning just before, and with the activists at La Paraña Café. Meeting at La Paraña, the students began small, with surveys and conversations with school administration, demanding higher quality teaching materials, more school counselors, school lunches that reflected Chicano culinary culture, and an end to punishments for speaking Spanish. Their requests were categorically refused by school officials, and they were denied a meeting with the school board. So the students developed a new plan, inspired by the success of the African-American civil rights movement's Montgomery bus boycotts of the previous decade. They decided they would boycott their schools. To understand why this was actually a potentially effective tactic, we need to pause for a moment to remember how schools receive their funding in the United States. Property taxes are levied at the district level, collected and then divided up into per-pupil expenditure, and redistributed to schools according to how many students are attending. The money then follows the students. This is the way, incidentally, that modern charter schools get their funding. Every student attending means that their slice of the tax dollar pie comes along with them. The Chicano student activists at what would eventually become the seven different high schools involved in the so-called blowouts understood that the city and state determined school funding allocations in this manner by per-pupil daily attendance. If students weren't attending, then the money attached to them wouldn't be flowing to their schools. By boycotting, they could bleed the schools dry of their funding and even force them to shut down if they didn't accede to their demands. This is because the term per-pupil expenditure means the money is allocated per-pupil, but that's not in practice how it's spent. Every school pools that money back together again and uses it to pay everything from teacher and administrator salaries to the heating bill. So if a critical mass of students doesn't attend, well, there won't be enough in the funding pool to keep anything operational. This was the power that the Chicano students realized they had. And it's the power, incidentally, that all students still have today, if any would-be student activists are listening out there. Now, to continue the story for all our listeners, who, after that last comment of mine, may now include the FBI and Homeland Security, hey, I'll take podcast subscribers anywhere I can get them, the first school to experience a blowout was Wilson High School, where students walked out after the principal canceled a performance of the student play, Neil Simon's Barefoot in the Park, on the grounds that it was too risque for high school students. That walkout was largely spontaneous, only involving about 200 to 300 students, and garnered little to no media attention. It was basically just a bunch of kids cutting class. Big deal. But in the days that followed, a series of more coordinated rolling walkouts began at Garfield, Wilson, Roosevelt, Lincoln, Belmont, Jefferson, and Venice high schools. The way a blowout worked was that students would arrive at school to show their numbers, then, right at the attendance bell, would walk out en masse and protest outside school grounds. At their height, an estimated 15 to 20,000 students participated in these events. The first day of the protests were peaceful, but as of the second day, police began responding with stark brutality, beating students savagely and chasing them in ways that led to stampedes that injured others. 
Contemporary news media, despite filming the helmeted police kicking and beating unarmed and nonviolent teenagers with nightsticks, refused to air that footage, leaving the public instead with the impression that the students had in fact been the violent instigators. Law enforcement and city officials shaped a narrative that the students were under the sway of communist infiltrators, and it wasn't until 1995 that the actual footage was finally released to the public. The PBS documentary Chicano is one place you can go to see it, and some was also included at the end of the HBO dramatization of the events called Walkout. Despite the beatings and other abusive and illegal tactics, like one school principal putting chains around the school doors to keep students from exiting the building, it became clear to city officials that they would not be able to operate the school system if these blowouts continued. So on March 28th, the school committee convened a special and very public session to hear the student leaders air their demands, which included firing any teachers who showed prejudice toward Chicano students, incorporating textbooks and curriculum that reflected Chicano contributions to American society, smaller class sizes, no penalties for faculty who expressed political views, engaging local parents as teachers' aides, and constructing new school facilities and libraries. The students' well-organized, non-violent strategy had succeeded in giving them a public platform for their concerns at last, which even police suppression couldn't prevent. However, the story didn't end there. Before the school committee could take any action, a mere three days later, police instituted a series of raids, arresting Sal Castro and 12 other individuals involved in organizing the blowouts, and charging them with 15 counts of conspiracy to disrupt the schools, Charges that, for each defendant, carried a 66-year prison sentence. Contrast that sentence and those beatings with the kid gloves manner in which the white supremacist mob actually threatening the lives of our Congress people were handled earlier this month if you need another illustration about the incredible racial double standard in law enforcement in our country. Here, too, though, the students weren't helpless. Students organized protests that led to the release on bail of all except Castro. Within just a few days, although they succeeded in his bail release as well on June 2nd. All charges against all the defendants were eventually dropped, and the so-called East LA 13 went free, but this process took four years to conclude. Eventually, after round-the-clock protests outside the LA school board office in the fall of 1968, the school board did allow Castro to resume his teaching position. Did the blowouts accomplish their goals? Well, yes and no. In the end, citing lack of funding, only minor changes were made within the East LA schools. But dramatic changes occurred in the lives of the actual students who participated in the protests. Chicano graduation rates and college acceptance rates both increased tremendously. And not just in Los Angeles, but nationwide, from 2% to 25%. And the LA schools did start hiring more Mexican-American administrators, more bilingual educators, and eventually Chicano superintendents. Although it would take an embarrassing 40 more years, the LA school district finally adopted college readiness programs as a district-wide policy for all of its schools. Many of the student organizers themselves found new inspiration and drive and went on to become prominent in their fields. For example, Vicky Castro was elected to the Los Angeles Unified School District Board of Education, while Paula Crisostimo, the student activist who is the focus of HBO's film Walkout, became a school administrator. Carlos Munoz Jr. went on to a distinguished teaching and research career at the University of California at Berkeley, while Moctezuma Esparza, one of the East LA 13, became a successful film producer. As for Mr. Sal Castro, he continued a lifelong career of teaching and activism in the LA area and beyond, 
And in 2009, the Los Angeles Board of Education voted to name a new middle school located on the campus of the old Belmont High School, Sal Castro Middle School. And Savannah Anaheim High School celebrates Sal Castro Day every March 27th. Castro himself died in 2013 at age 79. I wanted to showcase the East LA blowouts as just one of what I plan to be a series of examples of student activism and agency in our next season, to reinforce the idea that not only the responsibility to address educational inequities, but also the power to do so, does not lie solely with adults. As we enter into what is, perhaps, a new era in American leadership's approach to inclusivity and social justice, it can be inspiring, facing that long road ahead, to look back at some of the incredible work that young people have done. They are the reason that school and, by extension, this podcast exists. So let's celebrate their achievements. Let's recognize their power to achieve change in the system long before they graduate, and recommit ourselves to working with them to make school all it can be. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed this season of Ed Infinitum. I'm actually somewhat surprised that I've been able to make three seasons of this show in the middle of all the other things going on in my life. And the lion's share of credit for that goes to you, my listeners, who have written to let me know what this show means to you. If this show does mean something to you, then I'll ask you again to please take a moment to help support it financially. Hosting costs keep going up, available time keeps getting smaller, and even a few dollars here or there could really make the difference between me producing a season four or throwing up my arms and relegating this project to the back of my exceedingly long to-do list. I have some big plans for next season, but, but it probably won't happen without your help. So please, do take a moment to go to www.ed-infinitum.com and make a donation, or even become a regular patron. There are other ways to support the show even without money. For example, you could please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And generally, just spread the good word. But if you're at all able to financially support us, we would really appreciate it. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. If all goes well, the new season will begin sometime in March or April. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep working in whatever way you can for a better tomorrow.